Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. I'm Francesca Toey. This is for the May issue and in this podcast we're discussing one of the articles in the issue on reducing primary graft dysfunction in lung transplantation. And joining me is an author of the linked comment, Professor Alan Glanville. Please can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, it's Alan Glanville here. I work at uh, St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. I've worked in lung transplantation since uh, almost 1985 when I worked at the Brompton Hospital in London uh, and then subsequently at Stanford University with Norman Shunway and others and until I came back to St Vincent's and working with uh, Victor Chang and the group there um, and we've done over a thousand lungs uh, at St Vincent's now and I've been uh, privileged to be president of the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation and currently the president of the Thoracic Society of Australia and New Zealand. Thanks for joining us. Moving into the questions, you've looked through this paper and wrote a comment on it. So lung transplantation is a life-saving procedure for those patients with end-stage lung disease. But obviously, donor lungs are limited in supply and making sure that once you have a lung, it is kept in optimal conditions during the transfer is vital. So can you give us some background about the current methods of donor lung preservation and the development of ex vivo lung perfusion and ventilation systems? This is a fascinating area and there are a number of components to it. As you rightly emphasised, um, there is a, a surfeit of demand over supply for uh, donor organs throughout the world and that's more so the case in some areas than others. And although there have been very large improvements in the approach to organ donation so that uh, organ donor rates have increased around the world, particularly because of uh, excellent work that's been done based on uh, some of the initiatives that have been developed in Spain, there is still uh, a great need to be able to properly utilise any organ donor. So when somebody makes a decision to donate the organs of their loved one and the retrieval team retrieves those donor organs, in this case lungs, there are a number of ways to manage those lungs when they are outside the body or ex vivo so that they can be maintained in a state where they undergo less damage. Now, whenever an organism dies, there is damage to the tissues. Uh, Brain death alone causes organ tissue damage, uh, particularly for the lungs, and there may be changes related to something we call neurogenic pulmonary edema, or the circumstances of the death of the donor might be implicated in some damage to those lungs. It's true that none of the lungs that we ever transplant are perfect because they all come from somebody who's died. So there will be an intrinsic process that has happened that leads to damage of those lungs, at least temporarily. Our job when we are examining lungs to see whether they may be suitable to transplant into somebody is to optimise them and to look after them and to ensure that what we think uh, will work long term will work long term. We know that if the lungs don't work immediately, say in the first one to three days, because they've had primary graft dysfunction, that is dysfunction right from the beginning of it after implantation, that that is tied very closely to downstream events. It makes sense that the more severe that primary graft dysfunction, 
category three where the oxygenation is really very poor, often there are infiltrates throughout the lungs and the patient needs to be ventilated for a prolonged period of time, that that is associated with damage to the graft which goes on to cause or be associated with chronic lung allograft dysfunction. And what that means is that there is a progressive loss of lung function and this may ultimately lead to a lack of survival after the transplant or the need for retransplantation. So, recognising that that is a principal problem, it's important to manage those lungs when they're outside the body. The traditional methods have been cooling the lungs rapidly so that when they're removed from the body at the time of organ retrieval, they are flushed with cold saline solution to remove blood clots and the, and the like that might be left within the, the lungs. And those lungs are then gently inflated and placed uh, with the main airways and vessels tied off into an ice slurry in a device such as a, a simple esky or, or similar. And that allows them to be cooled to about 4 degrees centigrade because it's very important that the temperature is the right temperature if the lungs are too cold, then you get cold-induced damage, or if they're too warm, uh, they, you get warm-induced damage. That was a traditional method, and that was done from the very early days of, of lung transplantation around the world. It used to be, uh, when we first started doing this, that the organ donor was actually brought to the hospital um, from wherever they uh, happened to be, and the transplant was done in one theatre and in the next theatre was the uh, organ retrieval team. So there was a very short, what we call ischemic time, that is a period when the lungs were outside the body. That short ischemic time uh, was thought to be very beneficial and at that stage we thought that uh, if we prolonged the ischemic times, the ex vivo times to up to four hours, would be about the limit of what we could ask the, uh, the lungs to survive and still work. And you can understand that lungs that aren't being perfused by blood, don't have nutrients, don't have the normal oxygenation, the cells start to die and they are damaged. By cooling them, by core cooling them, as I've just mentioned, you slow that process down. And that was a traditional way of doing it. Now, about 10 years ago, Stig Steen looked at the possibility of putting lungs on a rig and perfusing them and ventilating them so that one could obviate the need to use the traditional means of core cooling of lungs. And over the last 10 years there has been tremendous development in this area and the trial that we are discussing today, the INSPIRE trial, really is the culmination of uh, many of those attempts and it's a multi-centre international study that has looked at standard uh, criteria lungs rather than lungs that are damaged. Now having said that, any lung that we transplant has some damage in it. But the lungs that are very damaged are a special group, extended criteria lungs or potentially uh, very damaged lungs that we would have to uh, examine a bit more closely. And this is why this study is so interesting because they have actually looked at standard criteria lungs. That is lungs that we would normally say, okay, we'll just put them in the ice slurry, take them out and, and transplant them. But what does the organ care system do? It allows the retrieval team to go to the operating theatre where the donor is, to place the explanted lungs onto this device so that they can be perfused with a special solution so that the 
perfusion of those lungs that have been taken out of the body are much more physiological uh, and also it, it is done at normal temperatures, normal thermic perfusion. What does this mean? It means that the tissues and cells of the lungs outside the body while they're on the organ care system device are able to undergo some nutritional support, some support from oxygen and importantly, and this is something that probably doesn't get the uh, focus that it really deserves, those lungs are ventilated. So the lungs are undergoing that normal phasic expansion and collapse. And that's probably a very important but understudied um, phenomenon of the lungs which are on a rig. It's like they were breathing normally, but they're on a ventilator. And that allows you also, as a caregiver, to examine those lungs both from the outside and the inside and to look inside the airways. And of course, uh, you can measure the pressures that you need to get various volumes of expansion to get an assessment of how stiff or pliable the lungs are, how compliant they are, and you can look at the pressures of the fluid which is circulating, and if need be, if the lungs are wet because of that phenomenon that I mentioned before, neurogenic pulmonary edema, then you can alter the solution to drag off some, some of that water so that the lungs become more compliant. And all these things are measured on the console, uh, which are part of the uh, organ care system device. So that in 10 years, we've seen from the first experimental uh, evidence that has shown that, yes, it can be done, an international study has looked at, in a non-inferiority way, whether this is a practical alternative to manage standard care lungs as opposed to putting them on ice. You said that in this INSPIRE trial by Gregor Warnocker and colleagues, and they've used this portable organ care system and some of the benefits of using that rather than the cold storage systems that are traditionally used. Can you briefly summarise the findings from this trial? There are a number of very exciting uh, findings from the study. In brief, they looked at about 300-odd patients that were randomised either to have the standard care or to have the organ care system device. And uh, their study met the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint of the study was to see whether within the first 72 hours the lungs developed primary graft dysfunction or the patient died. So it was a combined uh, endpoint. And then in a subgroup, they looked at uh, whether the patients who are receiving the organ care system, lung solution for perfusion, versus those who are not, and that was also significant. Now, in that group, only 18% in the OCS group who developed primary graft dysfunction grade 3, that's a more severe form, versus the, the control group where about 30% of the people or 30% of the lungs uh, develop primary graft dysfunction and also the safety endpoints were met. Now what does this mean in practice? Well, it means that in a very large study that was well analysed and well controlled, albeit non-blinded, and uh, it's important to emphasise that, as all standard lungs undergoing bilateral lung transplantation in an open study, that the majority, that is 82% of patients who received um, the organ care system support did not develop significant graft dysfunction compared to 70% in the group that did not. 
Now, that's a larger effect size than many people would have predicted for standard care lungs. And I mention that because there had been a thought around the world that the ex vivo lung perfusion technology would be most useful for lungs that were not functioning well, that is extended criteria lungs, and that one should consider using these devices to see whether we can salvage lungs that aren't performing well. And that may allow various um, therapeutic manipulations, as I've alluded to previously, including antibiotics and other therapeutic endeavours which are now in development. But also, there's a very exciting possibility that in real time, we can look at the genetic profile of those lungs to see what signals uh, those lungs are giving us that would might equate to a damaged situation that is not going to repair. And, and the other factor, which is very relevant, is that these lungs can be kept for a period of time much longer than we initially thought. I mentioned a, a four-hour period before, but certainly six, eight, and even up to 12 hours undergoing uh, repair or salvage or improvement so that when, by the time they go into the uh, recipient of the organ transplant, they are improved and they work better and the patient doesn't develop graft dysfunction. Now, why is that graft dysfunction important? It means that, that there will be longer time on the ventilator, longer time in the ICU, and longer time in the hospital. And although this study did not show conclusively that uh, those three factors were uh, reduced, there was certainly a very significant trend towards that, which didn't quite sort of meet uh, statistical sort of um, significance. But the trend was there, and for uh, many people working in intensive care and in hospitals, one would look favourably at anything that can reduce uh, time on a mechanical ventilator, time in an ICU and time in the hospital because they all track with increasing morbidity, increasing mortality and uh, increasing costs, particularly when you look at large groups of patients. So in summary, what, what does this trial show us? It shows us that we can look at lungs that uh, we would normally put on ice uh, we can use the organ care uh, device, take it to the hospital where the retrieval is being performed, place those lungs on the system. We have a period of time uh, then where they are quite safe, they're being improved, and uh, they can then come back to the hospital where the transplant surgery is being performed. And in a very controlled way, it takes some of the time pressure out of that uh, that initial operation because one of the variables that is, is hard to predict and any transplant surgeon will tell you this is that when the patient uh, who is about to receive the new lungs is being operated on to open their chest cavity to remove the old lungs it's a slightly unpredictable event as to how long that procedure will take it depends on the reason they're having the surgery and also on what's happened before, whether they've had their lungs are stuck to the chest wall and a number of other variables so that that operation on the potential recipient to remove the old lungs can sometimes take many hours. Every minute that that takes, which is longer, which prolongs the out-of-body, out-of-perfusion ischemic time, means that uh, lungs are undergoing potential damage. But when standard lungs are on a device such as the one uh, under study here, 
then that worry, that concern seems to be obviated. In your answer, you highlighted that the trial was unblinded and that this is an important factor to note. How could the trial being unblinded have affected the results? Well, for practical, very practical reasons, this is not a trial that could be blinded. And it would also really have a major increase in, in cost, if that were to say. But you have to ask the question, is this likely to abide the results towards or away from the null hypothesis? That is, does it make a practical difference? Bearing in mind that uh, these studies were done at a large number of international centres, the practical aspect of the care of the patient um, is performed by people who were not involved with the retrieval surgery or the implantation surgery. Yes, it's true that sometimes there may be discussions that would alert the caring doctors to the fact that this patient or that patient had received lungs that had been on a device, but that doesn't invariably uh, occur. It will be noted, of course, but it would not be a major focus of discussion. And if you take one aspect um, of the argument of is unblinding likely to have biased the study towards a positive or negative result, that could only be if there were individuals who knowingly or maybe unwittingly uh, had an intrinsic bias to or away from a particular likely outcome. That is, they were believers or non-believers, perhaps at an unconscious or subconscious level, and changed their practice accordingly. In the intensive care unit philosophy, in the critically ill patient uh, domain, it's entirely unlikely over such a large number of patients that this would have happened and actually altered the results. There may be, of course, uh, some noise in the system, that potential uh, effect of unblinding may have influenced the occasional intensive care unit uh, clinician or lung transplant clinician, but I think we can be really fairly comfortable with over 300 patients in the study that the signal to noise ratio would be strong. That is, there would be very unlikely to be a significant effect from uh, the odd individual who might have a conscious or unconscious bias to or away from using the device. I think that one has to give some credibility to the fact that everybody is working incredibly hard for survival and quality of life for these individuals uh, and that the parameters that are tracked and monitored are the same for everybody whether they've had, you know, been on a, a, an OCS device or not. So. Theoretically, um, in the best of all worlds, yes, double-blind placebo-controlled studies give you better quality evidence. But in these types of device technologies, the practicality demands that this would be a, uh, an unblinded study. What future research do you think is needed to add on to this trial's findings? Well, this trial really opens the way for research into how best to manage lungs when they're outside the body. Uh, and although that is slightly time dependent, there is a, a comfort zone there that we have several hours, possibly up to 12 hours, to manipulate those lungs. And that manipulation may allow uh, better function initially, 
but it's the long-term game which is critically important. So there is already work looking at the expression of various genes in the expanded lungs and to see whether there are damaged signals or signals which may not be able to be reversed by contemporary means. So the more we are aware of the intrinsic processes at a genetic level, we can tailor-make or use designer technology to effect a beneficial improvement of those lungs, maybe by dampening down some genetic expression and amplifying others. And that's where I think this technology is going in the future, that there may well be uh, centres in each country where the lungs can be taken, where a very sophisticated analysis can be performed and changes can be introduced uh, to improve the quality of the lungs at a genetic level, if need be, before they're transplanted uh, into an individual. And I mention a, a particular centre effect because these sorts of tools will not be widely available at all hospitals. But at the same time, if you have a safe way of transporting lungs so that they are protected and not undergoing further damage outside the body, you could theoretically retrieve them in hospital A, take them to the, the Centre for Lung Research at uh, Hospital B or University B, and then when they are deemed to be optimum, transfer them back to Centre C where they're implanted into a potential recipient. So that we look at um, another step in the pathway that will allow improved outcomes longer term. Now that's looking quite a long way in the future. And in the short term, there may be very effective means to uh, improve immediate graft function. And that may mean by giving antibiotics, by removing water, or by giving um, substances such as N-acetylcysteine, which has been shown in a, a pig model to be quite uh, effective. So it's, a, it's an exciting time, and we're looking forward very positively to further developments in this area. So it seems like it's an exciting time in the field with lots of future possibilities into improving the quality of the lungs that are used when they're transferred into the next patient. So thank you very much, Professor Allen, for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having us on board.